Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. Leanne Leahy was a lifetime New Yorker working at big Madison Avenue agencies when she decided to pick up and move to Portland, Maine to become CEO of an independent agency called VIA. She hasn't looked back since. Under her leadership, VIA has grown to an award-winning agency with relationships with national brands such as Unilever and Church & Dwight. Instead of operating a top-down model with a chief creative officer calling the shots, the agency has a creative council that critiques each other's work to allow for more perspectives to shape the final product. In this episode, Leahy chats about running an independent agency through COVID, how she works to diversify the talent pool from Portland, and why she's optimistic about 2023 despite the doom and gloom. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Leanne. How are you today? Hi, Allison. Wonderful to chat with you. Yeah. So how has the start of the year been for you and for VIA? I am feeling very excited about the start of the year. We're busy. We're um, really good energy. And despite the fact that the world's problems haven't really been resolved, I think we're feeling very optimistic. So the beginning of the year feels good. Good. So for maybe for the listeners who aren't familiar with VIA, tell us a little bit about your agency, what you're all about, where you're based, all of that. Sure. Absolutely. So VIA is next week, actually, 30 years old as an agency. So we'll be having a nice big celebration. Um, And over the years has been many things. Uh, We have a line that we were born in 1993 and reborn every year since. And I think that's true because we started many moons ago in um, a sort of more of a B2B agency doing uh, brand identity and visual vocabularies and things like that. And then in the early 90s, we morphed into more of a digital shop. Um, We were founded by an engineer, so he was interested in that. So we morphed into that. Um, We had a time when we were building 10,000-page websites and advising Eric Schmidt on what he should do when he was at Sun Microsystems was this thing called the Internet. And then 2001 forced a lot of people who were digital agencies at the time to pivot again. And so after the dot-com bust, we pivoted one more time and started to do sort of more general market um, consumer advertising. And then I'd say in around 2007, we made a conscious decision to really go after national brands, be a full service agency, and take all the experience we had from those different parts of our history and roll them together. And since that time, we've been awarded a number of times and named different variations of small agencies of the year and best culture and all sorts of things. And we have an agency that is committed to um, delivering rigorous magic for our clients. And by that, I mean, we are very steeped in data and process and analytics, and we dig really deep. But we understand that if you stop with that, you are optimizing your way to the middle. And so once you have all of the rigor, you need to have the ability to sprinkle some fairy dust and take some leaps of magic because that's what makes the world shake. And so Mm -hmm. that's what we're committed to delivering for our clients. And we get to work with clients like Unilever and Church and Dwight and Chick-fil-A and Tractor Supply Company and all sorts of wonderful clients. So we feel very lucky to do it. And we do it all from Ready, Portland, Maine. Yeah, I was going to ask you to talk about being based in Portland. Not many creative agencies there, I would imagine. Talk about what that location, how it gives you maybe a different flavor or how it sort of informs the way you go to market. Yeah, it's first of all, it's awesome. I'm a recovering New Yorker. 
Um, and so <laughs> I spent my life growing up and working in New York until 10 years ago when I came to visit Via and, um, and joined. And um, I have not looked back. I absolutely love it. I think Portland, we're here because our founder was a Mainer and wanted to build an agency here. And I always say we are of Portland or from Portland, but we are not in Portland in that we don't really have any clients here. As I mentioned, most of our clients are national. So we get to work from here, but work everywhere. And then that, of course, became more and more true um, after the pandemic when everyone got used to remote work, but we've been doing it for a while. I think the benefit of it is we are, um, we have really great proximity to New York. You know, it's a 35 minute flight. We have clients all over the country and we have a very East coast mentality, but I think we live like a lot of the country lives and we're not kind of in the navel gazing that, um, I existed in for sure when I was living in New York. You know, we have grocery stores that have full-size aisles and we drive to work and we coach our kids' little league teams. And it just gives us a real sense of kind of how most of the country works as opposed to just the outer coasts and um, without losing the kind of edge and drive that I think the the East Coast generally brings. So it's a perfect blend. And I also think that being by water, Portland is an amazing city. It's and no, it's not as cold, even though it's Maine. We're still at the bottom of Maine. Um, <laughs> but we're on the water. And I, I think there's plenty of studies that show that um, being by the water activates more creative areas within your brain, which I think yeah. is fascinating and, uh, and personally, definitely true for me. Yeah, no, I mean, the water, it just does something. It makes you just feel better, at least for me. So you came to VIA about 10 years ago, as you said, what drew you to the agency? You were at Lowe before, right? You were running, you were the chief strategy officer. Like talk about how you left the big agency, New York world to, to come well, to Via. Yeah. And I actually, I had left Lowe. I was the president of translation when I met John Coleman, who was the founder of Via. And I really wasn't looking to go anywhere. I wasn't actively searching because I was, I was a translation at a moment where we were having phenomenal growth and really making the transition from sort of a consultancy to a full service agency. So it was exciting and I was learning a lot. But um, in the process of meeting a million people, because we were hiring like crazy, I met John Coleman. Someone said, you know, why don't you have a conversation with this guy about you? And I was like, about me? I'm busy. I have too much going on. And, <laughs> uh, and they very wisely said to me, but you already kind of have a case study here. Why don't you think about your next steps? And I was like, I don't have time for that. But I'll have one conversation. And the one conversation happened to be with John Coleman and two things happened. One, it was very clear from the first time we met that we enjoyed each other, that we could have fun together. There was a lot of laughing and um, it sort of woke up a part of me that made me realize I was having a ton of success in the job that I was in, but not a lot of fun. And fun was Mm. part of the reason I went into advertising, right? Like I used to laugh every day, all day. And I was missing that. So that was one reason I was really struck that I was able to have fun with John and and the team here. And then the the bigger thing, I think, um, to sort of work in reverse order, is that it was really clear to me that the values that VIA was built on uh, were my own personal values. And John Coleman and I are very, very different stylistically, but we are exactly the same when it comes to values. And I just knew we could build an agency that was smart and creative and caring and fun and was good to people. And that maybe the work that we put out could actually just leave the world a little bit better than we left it. And 
too many agencies kind of cut off those last bits. You know, they don't really care about mm-hmm. fun. They're not really interested in the people. They're sort of cogs in the machine. And, um, and they're not really focused on the work having a positive outcome. And I think those three things were really, I saw them as possible again, and I got really excited. And again, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. Um, and suddenly six months into my friendship with John, I found myself moving to Maine and I haven't looked back. Wow. So, um, I think what you were sort of saying about like, you know, people, you got into this industry to have fun. Like I think sometimes, especially particularly in the larger agencies, everything gets taken very seriously. Right. Do you feel like Mm -hmm. being like, what was it about via that you felt like you could have fun again? Was it that it was a smaller independent shop, less bureaucracy, less, uh, top down, or was it just the culture there? I think it's a combination. I mean, certainly our culture is really phenomenal. Um, we are very people first. We are very empathic. Um, we are um, a supportive place, but that doesn't mean we're not ambitious and hard charging. So I think the balance of that is pretty magical. Um, but I also think our independence gives us a lot of flexibility and we make the decisions that we make. We've, we've been independent for 30 years. We just made the decision to transition to an ESOP and be employee owned fully. Um, and, you know, we just, we make decisions that are in the best interest of us as opposed to just shareholders or because we're beholden to, you know, a network of holding company, a holding agent, mm-hmm. holding company agencies. And I think, you know, I don't know if we want to hire talent, we want to invest in it, but it means it's going to affect our profit, but we think it's better for the long run. We do it. If we yeah. think it's better to, um, to be in an office that's going to inspire not only us, but our clients, we do it. You know, we do these things that we think have long-term impact because we have control over our own de- destiny. And, and I think it just makes us a really happy place to be. And that's yeah. not to say I'm not naive. You know, we have bad days. Everybody has bad days. But overall, I think people like coming to work here. I mean, we've been back in the office. We were in this beautiful old library um, in Portland, Maine, that is just a magical place. We've been called the Hogwarts of advertising. But <laughs> um, but we um, we got back to the office in ready July of 2021. So all yeah. this return to office discussion that we're seeing now is is kind of crazy. But we came back because we had the luxury of owning our own building, being a sole tenant, not relying on mass transit. I understand most agencies don't have that luxury, but we did. So we took advantage of it. And, you know, there was a little bit of discomfort in the beginning, as there always is when you're going through change. But now we have really complete flexibility for people, um, whether they're here or not here. Wednesdays, we all work from home and we have Mm -hmm. no meetings before three. But other than that, it's pretty flexible, whatever you want to do. And I find that most people are choosing to be in the office more than they're not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, part of it was probably I, getting here, but yeah. Yeah, no, I want to talk about your, your back to the office stuff because it's pretty unique. But first, um, talk about why you made the decision to be employee owned. I think well, that's pretty we, rare for agencies. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. So it started in 2015, so seven and a half years ago. And, um, you know, like most mid-side agencies that have had some notoriety and success and work with Fortune 100 companies, our phone would ring a lot for um, people who were targeting us for acquisition or, you know, mergers or looking for us to buy things. And over the years, we've done, we've bought some other agencies and folded them in. We've done all sorts of things. But when it came time to decide what we were um, going to do long term, 
we really looked at what was going to give us the most control. And um, we decided our independence was too important. So we started something called the VIA Employee Equity Program, and we called it VEEP. It was a bespoke program by which our founder was effectively gifting his ownership of the agency to the associates in the form of options. Very complicated, very tax efficient in the front end and very inefficient in the back end, but it gave us tremendous flexibility. So we started the mentality of you guys are going to become owners. This is how we're, we're transitioning the company. Now, not everyone's going to do that. It takes a certain type of philanthropist to even believe that he should be giving away ownership in his life's work to the people who helped him build it. But assuming we had that. So we did that for seven years and, and it was supposed to be a 10 year program. And, um, after seven years, I met all the preferences that would allow us to convert from options to shares and the tax inefficiencies kicked in. And so it became really clear that that program had limitations. We knew that going into it, but we sort of figured we'd cross that bridge later. And then we got there. So we looked at a lot of other options again and um, all sorts of different structures. And I won't bore you with the details of corporate governance, but (laughs) it turned out that an ESOP was going to help us fulfill our goal of being a place that rewards the people who build it and who work here every day. And sort of John's vision of what we refer to as generational employment. That's not to say that any individual is going to have generational employment, but the idea that we'll be an employer in the state of Maine for a good body of people for a long time. And if we can create a pass down mechanism that will have generational impact. And so um, in October, we announced to the associates that we were going to transition to an ESOP and we completed the deal going into the end of last year. So so it's a very exciting time around here. Yeah. So what exactly does that mean for employees? Like if if you're part of an ESOP, do you get like paid out on equity? Like this is me being sort of unversed. In these yeah, financial no, terms. trust me. <laughs> I was more unversed than anyone. Um, and now I'm very versed. But yeah, so um, basically it's technically an ESOP is a qualified retirement plan. So what happens is that every year, based on the performance of the company and the valuation, there's always a third-party valuation that's done every year. So based on that valuation, every employee will receive shares in the ESOP um, that will grow. And it's like a 401k, right, where you have those shares. And when you leave, if you're over 59 and a half, you can cash them out. If you are under that age, you can roll them into a 401k uh, that you already Mm -hmm. have existing. Or, um, or another IRA of some sort, or you can cash them out and take a little bit of a penalty. But, um, but once you have the shares, they are yours, you own them. And so, yes, you're gifted equity every single year in return for the company's performance growth and valuation improvement. Wow. Talk about incentives, right? One thing I wanted to ask you a little bit more about is um, sort of the way that you've structured your back to office plans, right? So, you have this yeah. like work from home Wednesdays, no meetings till three. Like how did you sort of having been one of the first agencies to go back to the office? What have you tested and learned that has worked so far? Yeah. Well, we tested and learned a lot and we're constantly talking to our folks. So that's the first thing we started in, as I said, July of 2021. And we, st- I started out intentionally going to the an extreme. And I said, we're going to be in the office four days a week. Or what I really said was, we're going to be in the office eight days out of every 10. So everyone got two floating days to work out with their teammates, 
what days they would be out. And they could either do two days in one week. You could do one day a week. You could do two half days a week. However you wanted to sort it out, you had two days every 10-day cycle. And I really did that so that it wouldn't just be stockpiled, you know, if you did four days a month or something like that. And so we did that for about six months, and it was working well. We did lose some people, to be perfectly candid. You know, some people who were like, well, I don't want to go back to an office. And okay, you know, that is – that's – they're right. And we were going back. We just felt like ultimately we are better when we're together in person and we can collaborate. So we did that for about six months. And about six months in, I asked the team, do you want to change this? And everyone said, no, it's great. Let's keep it. And we said, okay, well, let's put in one more day though. And it's work from home Wednesdays where everybody works from home. And the reason we wanted to do that is because I wanted to make sure people were definitely taking a work from home day because we were already starting to see some people were here all the time. And we learned in remote work, right, that there are absolutely certain tasks that are better performed individually. And there are certain things you can be more productive with when you're focused and quiet and working remotely. So we wanted to have a little bit of that. So we layered that in. And then about six months after that, um, we said, you know, we're starting to just be home, but on Zoom all day. And that's not really the point of work from home Wednesdays. So we layered in this idea that there are no internal meetings before 3 p.m., I say internal because it's a little hard to manage clients and when they want to have meetings, but they're actually getting on board with us. They're kind of realizing now as we keep doing it that this Wednesday thing is giving us real focus. So now we have the three components. And then um, about six months after that, which would have taken us to, I don't know, six months ago, we said, okay, so how do we all think this is working? And everyone said, I love my Wednesdays. They work really well. I feel good that I have the flexibility of another day. And everyone seemed to think that they knew where their teams were, that the the remote and in-person divide was working pretty well. And so we just said, okay, now do whatever you want. Mm. Because the one floating day was working, so we trust you with two or three if you need it. And the reality is that, again, we're seeing more people in the office probably three to four days a week. But it's their choice. And I think what we're really seeing is just flexibility. You know, people will come to the office for a few hours, but then they'll also go to their kids' field hockey game, or they'll, you know, go pick their kids up after school, or they want to go walk their dog, and they just work in the flexibility. So it's not so absolute that there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm home, and Thursday, Friday, I'm in the office, or vice versa. It's just much more fluid, and we are working together collaboratively where and when we need to. Yeah. So talk about how that sort of shaped your um, creative process. I know you guys are doing something really interesting in terms of the way that you organize your creative leadership. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's all sort of part of rigorous magic, right? We need to be um, we need to be process oriented and have expertise and be like really exceptional at delivering on all of our disciplines and all of our processes and all of our all of our data and all of our rigor, I guess is the, the way to say it. Cause that's what we say. Um, so we have to be really good at that, but then we have to create um, the optimal environment for magic to happen. And we did a study of about 200 brands in 20 or so different categories over two years, where we looked at the brands that had the most growth and success. And we looked at their work and what they were doing in the world. And we dissected it and sort of ran it through a black box analysis. And what we found is there are certain drivers of magic. There are certain things that you can't always predict lightning in a bottle. You can, in fact, never predict lightning in a bottle, but you can or capture it. But you can 
orchestrate so that you're in the best possible position to make it happen. And so among those are things like surprise and uniqueness and emotion, things that actually are enhanced by us being together physically because spontaneity is greater. Um, there are emotional reactions that can be resolved and, um, and we can, we can emote with each other much more authentically in person than you can necessarily on a screen. So being in the office has helped us to, um, really set ourselves up to deliver rigorous magic. But so has the way we're structured. And I think you know this, but we are, we're set up in client pods, first of all. So we have interdisciplinary pods that are built around clients um, rather than being in departments. And then, uh, to your point, we changed our creative leadership. So we decided mid-year last year that having a single chief creative officer was not going to help us to, A, orchestrate magic in the way we wanted it to, and B, it wasn't helping us to have the diversity of thought that we really so desperately need. And I think we all talk about diversity, but then we find someone and we stick them into a very broken patriarchal hierarchical system with the singular CCO. And then everybody beneath them is trying to second guess what that one person's work is going to what that one person's going to like. So the work gets trimmed out and it's not diverse and it doesn't show lots of different perspectives. And so um, we decided instead to not have a single um, hierarchical system that resolves with the CCO. Instead, we have what's called a creative council. In fact, they call themselves the COOP because they're a co-op. And it's made up of six people, four of our most senior creatives, our head of innovation and technology, and our head of production. And they are not a governing body. They don't decide what goes out the door. Each of the ECDs, the most senior creatives, decides what goes out the door on the accounts that they are on. And, um, and they work with the executive team, obviously. And so everybody knows what's going on there, but they set the vision and they deliver the work for their clients. But once a week, the entire coop comes together and they share their work with one another and they critique one another. And what that allows us to do is have lots of varied perspectives, looking at all the work we're doing on the clients and commenting and pushing it. It creates a nice sense of healthy competition it creates diversity of thought. It creates new perspectives. And it really uh, stops us from navel-gazing a lot, mm. which is great. Mm. And our clients love it because they're getting six, you know, six people for the price of one. And we love it because our work is getting stronger and better and fresher. And I've been in conversations. I sit in there sort of as a fly on the wall. Um, and I've been in conversations where I've heard them say, you know, gosh, I love this campaign. I love how it's coming to life and TV and outdoors. Amazing. But man, have you lost the plot in your social? And that's just a really healthy conversation. Or for someone to say, you know, I know you're targeting men in this campaign, but you're really alienating women. I know you're showing them, but the way you're talking about them, it's there's some microaggressions in there. Or somebody can say, gosh, I know it's just swipe, but have you really thought about this population or that population or how they interact? Or it's more simple where, you know, they're looking at an almost finished spot just the other day for one of our clients for Church and Dwight. And somebody else looking at it just said, do you really need those supers? They're kind of distracting. And I mean, the whole team for three months had been delivering on something that had these supers. And it just took a fresh perspective to say, I think they're taking away. And suddenly the piece of work was that much better. So it's working really nicely and it's giving us a lot more rich conversation and healthy competition around the work. Yeah, it's, it's really unique because I think, you know, for the most part, creative agencies, they do take that more hierarchical structure. Do you feel like the CCO role doesn't work? 
I think it's hard. Um, I mean, I've worked with some wonderful CCOs in my life and I, I feel very, as a plant growing up as a planner, they were my partners and, um, and I really valued that relationship, but I do think it's hard because even if you get the best, most creative, most open-minded, wacky thinking CCO, but the nature of the system creates an environment where everybody below them is second guessing themselves to please that one person. So it's not that the CCO him or herself or themselves doesn't work. It's that the hierarchical system, that's a pyramid to one. I think that's broken. I think that doesn't Mm. let every voice shine. I think that doesn't open us up um, because it's, it, it's built to please a single person at the top. And I think we all talk about systemic problems, right? We got to start fixing systems. And when we sit back yeah. and looked at it, we were like, we could hire the most amazing person in the world who has all sorts of different perspectives and life experiences from the rest of us. It's still, you plug them into a broken system and the system still takes away from it. And I think that's why we see so many rotating Um, people at the top in so many agencies lately, because we're trying Mm. to achieve this diversity of thought, but it's not the individual's fault that we can't get there. It's the organization and the structure. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to DE&I, like it's pretty clear in a lot of cases that we're, we're hiring, like the industry is hiring to fill gaps, but not really creating space or structure to support diverse talent. Talk about I know VIA has some programs um, for diverse talent. I know being in Portland, Maine is probably a little bit difficult to, to reach a really diverse pool of talent, right? So talk about how you oh, approach yeah. that. Yeah. So, well, first of all, we call it EDI, which seems like a really little thing, but I actually think it's a big thing because we, we stress equity as our start point because we really feel like if we don't have an equitable environment, diversity will never thrive. So it's a little thing, but kind of a big thing, the way we address it. And then, yes, we have, we have an EDI committee. We have all sorts of projects and programs, but you're right. It is really hard to attract diverse talent to Portland, Maine. And that's not to say there isn't a lot of diverse talent here. There is a lot of diverse talent we can grow. Um, Portland actually has a huge immigrant population from um, the African diaspora, and we're able to teach high school students and expose them to advertising as a career. But that takes time. And we're growing talent. That is one thing we're doing. So we have an apprentice program. We did it in HR and we're actually kicking it off in creative where we're working with young people, some who have some career experience, some who have none. Um, And on our dime, we're training them and then making them eligible for hire. And that's kind of really exciting. And we've also eliminated any um, need for a four-year college degree to participate in that. So that's one thing we do. Another thing we do, we've actually been doing for four and a half years, which is called Velocity. And Velocity is a collective of diverse talent that lives all over the country and indeed, frankly, the world. And they are effectively freelancers on retainer to us. So we have a relationship with everyone in Velocity. They are on retainer. We, um, they have a via email and they are assigned to a pod. So they're always assigned to a client. And then they can go off and work for whoever they want as long as it's non-competitive on their client. And when we activate them on a project, we um, pay them a project fee. And the benefit of that is that they're connected to the agency and they're feeling like 
they're getting to know us, we're getting to know them. They know what's going on on a client. So when we start a freelance project, we're not starting from zero, which makes a huge difference and makes your money go much further. And, um, and it, it just really exposes the agency to lots of different people. So we've had that for about four and a half years and we've had some people in the, in Velocity, it's mostly planners and creatives. Some people have said, um, this is great. I want to stay working this way for forever. Uh, some people have said, this is not so great for me. I'm going to either take a full-time job or just go back to 100% freelance. And some people have said, um, I actually want to come join VIA full-time. Mm-hmm. So it's worked out really nicely. Um, and at any time, any given time, we have between five and 20 people in Velocity. Um, mm-hmm. And we're always kind of filling that pipeline. So it's been great. And then on top of that, we do all sorts of things that I think a lot of other agencies are doing, but we did a, a very hearty, our EDI team led a very healthy um, education all through last year. We did a whole conscious um, revolution sort of education uh, throughout the entire organization. And um, we launched what we call the 5% program, which is 5% of every single VN's time is to be dedicated to anti-racist efforts. And it's part of your review and part of your, um, you know, part of that we manage to it, we keep the time. And, you know, 5% doesn't seem like a lot, but it's actually a lot of hours. And you can use that time to do whatever you feel is where you are around the issue of anti-racism. If it's about going out and networking or educating or participating in the apprentice program, great. If it's about reading a book or seeing a movie or just opening your eyes, that's okay too. Uh, just as long as you use the time to um, work towards our ultimate goal of yeah. keeping us all open-minded and diverse. And are you still hiring talent? I mean, beyond Velocity in other cities or is it very, because I know you're back in the office. How do you kind of balance that? Yeah, it's tricky. We are because there's some amazing talent that we want to have access to. Um, it is a case by case basis. We have a probably four or so people who are kind of 100% remote. Um, what we try and do is make sure that there are moments within each quarter that we can get them to be on site. So we always um, kick them off by getting them to come up here and um, spend a week or a few days getting to know us and us getting to know them in person. Because I think part of what makes remote work really well is when you have built-in familiarity. So mm-hmm. we try and establish that early. And then, yeah, um, I did have a rule that, you know, they had to be here 10 days out of every quarter. And that's, as you pointed out earlier, Allison, like we test and learn about a lot of things. I don't know if I need to mandate 10 days. They don't have to be 10 sequential days, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but we do like to have them here as much as we can. And so we're trying to figure out what that right balance is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, that's a work in progress, but yes, we do have some employees in other states and outside of Velocity and, um, and some of them are fully remote and we're, we're figuring it out as much as everyone else is. It's not something we are actively looking to do. We're not really promoting jobs as fully remote. We mm-hmm. are, uh, promoting jobs, looking for the right person. And if we find the right person and they want to be fully remote, we will work with them. Mm. So we started this interview with you saying you were very optimistic about 2023. I think some people are a little bit cautious about the year. Uh, a lot of layoffs yeah. happening, a lot of cutting back of budgets. Talk about like, what's the sense you're getting from your clients about how they're planning for the year ahead? And then what priorities does that set for you as, as an agency leader? 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I do feel, um, I feel almost a little bit bad being optimistic in a sea of, of things like layoffs, which have been hitting a lot of, you know, friends and people that I I greatly admire. Um, I feel like I'm going to hold the line on optimism though. Um, maybe I just need it because the last couple of years have been pretty tough and like, I deserve some optimism. (laughs) So maybe that's it. (laughs) We all do, Uh, right? (laughs) it's, It's possible. I may just be holding on for dear life. But um, but I actually think we're hearing from more and more of our clients. It's very different from, you know, 2008 when everyone was really pulling back on budgets and shutting things down. Uh, we're hearing clients who are going to spend through whatever financial difficulties we have because they understand the importance to invest in their brand. So the budgets might be a little tighter and we might have to use them more creatively, but they're not going to halt is what we're feeling and hearing from our current client base. We have a fair bit of new business going on right now, which is great because I feel like it's the same story. And honestly, I don't think anything's going to be fixed in our country world. I mean, I wish I could say this, but I wish I could say that I thought the the light is coming and it's all going to be cleaned up. I don't think we're going to have resolution to a lot of issues this year or even really next year. And because of that, I think more and more people are just settling into this reality. I I mean, I always say people get comfortable in their discomfort, right? That's why I think in the pandemic, we all went, well, I'm never leaving my house again. Why would I ever leave my house again? Mm -hmm. Because they just got comfortable in their discomfort. And when you go outside, you're like, oh, now I remember why I like to go to an office. There's a healthy separation between work and home. So, you know, you have to kind of get over a hump. But I do feel like America settling into the discomfort that we're in right now, that's not to say that we should be accepting of it or that we should allow ourselves to get fatigued and not deal with the issues that we have at hand, because we certainly have to do that. But I think people are not, you know, going to hold their chips as much as they maybe did, you know, three months ago. Uh, Well, I know holidays, but um, I I think people are just going to live their lives um, because we can't just stay in a holding pattern. We've been in a holding pattern for like three years. Yeah. You know, whether it was we're waiting for a vaccine or we're waiting for an election or we're waiting for a recession or we're waiting for, you know, a recovery. We've been waiting and I think we just need to start living. And so that's my my hot take is the optimism comes because America's ready to just live. And um, I think clients understand that they have to spend through uh, these difficult times in order to make their continue to make their brand strong because it's more expensive if they don't. Right, right. Well, it's full steam ahead, looks like, for Via. Um, thank I'm you hoping. so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Leanne, for joining me. And I uh, hope we talk soon. Always a pleasure, Allison. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.